when we look in the bookstores or online to uh, the topics of spiritual teachings, we find mentioned uh, healing, wholeness, uh, authenticity, uh, finding God, peace, joy, bliss, uh, wakefulness, uh, emptiness, and we get uh, we get a sense of where these teachings are headed, or what the uh, goal, or the purpose, or the, the vehicle for this practice is. And then we come to the Buddha, and he's talking about suffering and the end of suffering. And initially, it's a little counterintuitive, like. Uh, how are you going to catch anybody with that topic? <laughs> I mean, mostly we want to go in that direction, <laughs> not that direction. And so it takes a little, uh, it takes a refined understanding to really get what the Buddha was pointing to when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only suffering, and the end of suffering. He codified his teachings on suffering and the end of suffering in his first discourse after his awakening when he spoke to the five ascetics that he had practiced with. And this, in this first discourse, he laid out the understandings the depth of the understandings that he had realized that had freed his mind from suffering. And this was a talk or discourse on the Four Noble Truths. As the teachings of the Buddha have migrated from India, where the Buddha lived, to west to Pakistan area, north to Tibetan area, and then into Can uh, Canada, yeah, right, uh, China. Well, eventually, I mean, if you go far enough, you know, China, down to Sri Lanka, and around the southwest, uh, south, southeastern U U.S. Uh, <laughs> southeastern U.S., Florida. Um, Okay, let's wind this back a little bit. <laughs> Wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone. <laughs> Wherever. The, uh, the four noble truths are an essential piece of it. And over the many centuries of Buddhism in Tibet, Buddhism in China, Buddhism in Japan, it has mixed and merged with the cultural uh, paradigm there. And we now have Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Burmese Buddhism. And they all look quite different from each other. And if you listen to a Tibetan teacher and a Burmese monk and a, a Japanese Zen master, you might wonder, are they... Are they speaking the same language? But if you listen closely, underneath all of the ritual and appearance and uh, 
formats of practice and forms of practice, underneath it is the same understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So in some ways we could say that the Four Noble Truths is the bedrock upon which other teachings of the Buddha and commentaries on those teachings have been built. So it's important for us as we practice in our culture to kind of strip away the cultural encrustations of the Buddhism that comes to us and see for ourselves what the Buddha taught and how we can understand it and use it in our life and how our practice can address it directly. Probably all of you have heard of the Four Noble Truths and maybe even know what they are. But I think it's important for us to see our practice here in terms of the Four Noble Truths, how our practice here is informed by and relates to and confirms to the Four Noble Truths, so that the Four Noble Truths aren't just a a theory, a theoretical construct, way of understanding life or practice that is quite divorced from our what we're doing here. So I want to try to speak about them in a way that really grounds our practice here in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So the first Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means truth. So it means the truth of dukkha. Now, when I first started practicing 30-some years ago, the translation of dukkha satcha was life is suffering. I was in my early 20s, mid-20s, and you know I had a lot of energy and my whole life ahead of me, and I was living the way I wanted to live, and I didn't get it. Life, I didn't think life was suffering. I thought life was pretty good. On my first retreat, which was purely by accident, I sat way up back, leaned against the piano the whole time. I was in excruciating pain as I tried to sit. My mind was all over the place. I didn't really understand what I was doing there or or how to practice. I'm not sure I had one good sitting in those two weeks, but I wasn't suffering. (laughs) Ten years later, I went to Burma and listening to one of Saito Pandita's translators translate dukkha into the oppressive nature of experience. I got it. Experience is oppressive. <laughs> there are oppressive experiences in life. And I, and I began to really grok what the Buddha was talking about. What I realized from that is that dukkha is a very, uh, a very refined word. It has an extensive meaning, and it cannot be translated into a single English word or even a single English sentence. It's more like a whole talk or a whole essay would be required to really uh, lay out the, the meaning of dukkha. But let me try. Initially, and maybe most basic, dukkha means pain. And there's the obvious physical and mental 
pain that we're all familiar with, you know, um, well, when you sit. There's pain in the knee, there's pain in the back, there's pain in the shoulder, there's the pain when you jam your finger in the car door, or when you get burnt, or when you're sick. Or as you grow older, there's aches and pains that come, not from disease, but just from being older. And there's the very obvious pain that we all experience at one time or another. There's also the very obvious um, emotional pain that we all experience at one time or another, such as loneliness, uh, stress, anxiety, fear, jealousy, envy, despair, depression, feeling alienated, isolated, cut off, ashamed, guilty, well, the, end, the list is endless. And we all feel those, that, that kind of emotional pain, that mental pain at different times in our life. We all experience that. This kind of unsatisfactory experience, physical pain, emotional pain, is so obvious, it's called dukkha dukkha, in case you miss it. <laughs> well, okay, there is the truth of dukkha dukkha. Dukkha dukkha exists. Pain, physical obvious, physical and mental pain exists. But there's a second meaning of the word dukkha, which refers to and relies on the fact that everything changes. And because everything changes, everything is unstable. All the conditions in our life are in flux. And no matter really what we do to stabilize the conditions in our life, the conditions that support our happiness, the conditions that support our security, the conditions that support our sense of well-being, no matter what we do to kind of stabilize them, they are forever fragile, vulnerable to change. And it doesn't take much looking around to see just how quickly conditions can change and what was once a very stable, happy, you know, secure existence becomes unstable and insecure. We try, we spend a lot of our life trying to insulate ourselves from this insecurity. And if we keep ourselves distracted and we pile up a ton of money and a lot of friends and a big retirement account and take our vitamins, do our yoga and jog at least three times a week, well, we can do that and more. Still, the threat of unwelcome change is just over the horizon or it's just on the periphery of our vision. And so we are forever living with this insecurity, this instability. Now we could say that, well, yes, but you know, right now I'm healthy. I have a good job. My relationships are fine. There's no war here. Uh, I've got some money in the bank and I got a new car and 
you know, I take my vitamins, I do all, I, and think life is good. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Pleasant is pleasant. Pleasant conditions are pleasant conditions. The dukkha of pleasantness is that it's not insured. There's no guarantee. It can all change in a minute. And so we say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant conditions. But the changeability of that pleasantness means that we are forever living with insecurity. Whether we face it and look at it or not, whether we deal with it or not, it's still there. Now, we've all felt insecurity. We've all felt insecure in our life. We've all at times wanted a better job, a better more income, a better house, a more reliable car, or whatever. And when we feel that, we feel what that insecurity and, and, and instability feels like. It's not pleasant. It's unsatisfactory. We'd, we'd rather have something else. But most of us, when we feel that, take it personally. We feel like, oh, I just, ha I have, I haven't got it together yet. I haven't quite got my roots deep enough, got my bank account big enough, and got my, it's, it's a personal limitation. And the Buddha said, no, that, it's not personal. Everyone lives with this condition all the time. We miss the profundity of what the Buddha was pointing to because we personalize it. And, and somehow feel that it, our insecurity is limited to our conditions. Not so. Everyone experiences this. So we have the obvious pain, mental and physical, emotional. We have the unsatisfactoriness of the insecurity that we all live with. There's a third meaning or a third area of life that dukkha points to. And there's a macro view and the micro view. The macro view is we're born and doing the best they can. Our parents or other caregivers feed us, bathe us, clothe us, love us, soothe us, coo us, goo goo us. They do whatever they can to keep us happy because Otherwise, we make their life dukkha. <laughs> and so we do what we can. You know, they do what they can. And, and, you know, for a year or two or three or four, they take care of us. Thank you. And then they enlist the help of other relatives and teachers and the government and all kinds of people to kind of carry the burden from age, well, whenever they can. <laughs> you know, as soon as they can, as much as they can. And everybody gets in on the, on the process of taking care of, this body and mind. But somewhere down the line, you know, at, you know, in our early teenage years or middle teenage years, our parents and everyone else start saying, you're on your own. Pretty soon you're going to be on your own. And at some point we're on our own. Then it's our responsibility. And we have to take care of this body and this mind. And to take care of the body, well, you've got you to feed it. And if you want to feed it, you've got to buy it. You've got to have some food. If you want the food, you've got to buy it. To buy it, you've got to have money. 
to get the money, you gotta have a job. To get the job, you gotta go to school. Sometimes you gotta go to school for 16 years. There's some dukkha. <laughs> and so you work, you know, 40 hours a week. You shop for 10 hours a week. You pack it away in your house for another three hours a week. You cook for another six or eight or 10 hours, 12, 20 hours a week. You eat for an hour a week. And you take out the garbage and, okay, that keeps the body going. But then you gotta bathe. You gotta go to the toilet frequently. You gotta groom this body. You gotta clean the nails. You gotta do, you gotta, you gotta address it. You gotta keep it warm. You gotta keep it comfortable. You gotta keep it moving. If you don't keep it moving, it's like sitting still for an hour. <laughs> That's dukkha. Okay. But the body is the easy part. We also have this mind. You gotta take care of your mind. You have to keep it entertained. You gotta keep it distracted. You gotta keep it from getting bored. You know how unpleasant that is. And you gotta keep it moving. You gotta keep, you gotta keep it in, uh, just engaged with something all the time. Or it'll get unhappy, it'll get bored, it'll get impetuous, it'll get angry, it'll get irritated, it'll get frustrated, disappointed. You know. And if you don't do that, it's like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> So now we've got to take care of this body, we've got to take care of this mind for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, some of us, eight decades. 24 7 for decades. At the end of which, what happens? You know, it all gets packaged up in a box and put in a hole in the ground. <laughs> now, some would say that's a bad investment. But, nevertheless, if all you're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave, it definitely is a bad investment. But if you're using this body and mind to understand where the dukkha is coming from, how the dukkha is happening, and to free yourself from dukkha, you make good use of it. That's the macro view of what is called sankara dukkha. The micro view is... We have these six senses, eyes, ears, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. They are constantly being stimulated all the time. You can't turn your ears off. I mean, you fall asleep, but loud noises wake you up. You can close your eyes and you still see visions. You can do what you can to the body. You can lay in a hot tub at the right temperature, whatever you want, and this easiest, most ergonomically designed chair in the body is still gonna feel sensations. And the mind, has anybody figured out a way to turn it off? No. And so we are constantly bombarded by these six senses being, sense doors being activated by gross or subtle, pleasant or unpleasant sensations our whole life. And you can't turn it off. You have to deal with it. You have to. Nobody can do it for you. It's hard to imagine what relief would be like if you could turn off the senses. Stress, stressful conditions come from this constant impacting of the sense doors. And you know, we go on retreat, we quiet down, we go in a quiet room, we fall asleep in order to do the best we can shut it out. Or some of us take drugs, some of us do alcohol, other drugs, just to get away from it. 
this kind of constant stimulation is oppressive. It is just oppressive. But it's hard to get it because we cannot imagine what life without this constant contact would be like. And so we don't even think of it. But when you, if you can even begin to open to just what it means and what it feels like to carry this body and mind around and to feel this constant contact and stimulation all the time, you can see it is just burdensome. This is dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha. It's hard to open to the truth of dukkha. As I said, partly because we um, take it personally and we think it's just because, well, there's something wrong with me. I haven't quite gotten it together. But it's also hard because we can't imagine anything else that doesn't include it. We can't. Somehow in our mind we think, wouldn't it be great not to have pain? But what does that mean? Wouldn't it be great not to be insecure? Wouldn't it be great not to be constantly stimulated? But do you know anybody? Everyone experiences this. Men have their dukkha. It's a given. Women definitely have their dukkha too. Young people, children, teenagers, old people, they have their dukkha. Monks and nuns living in isolation, solitude, seclusion, all day to meditate. They have their dukkha. We lay, lay people who have children or not, we have our dukkha. People who live in Asia, they got their dukkha. We who live in the West, we have our dukkha. Everybody has dukkha. Wealthy people, they have dukkha. Poor people, they have dukkha. Everyone lives with this condition of dukkha all the time. So dukkha has these three meanings. You know, the pain and suffering, the vulnerability, insecurity, and this oppressive responsibility to care for this body and mind. Now, I grew up in New England in the 50s, and my parents were of the generation where my mother said to me, Steve, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So, even though I lived in an alcoholic family uh, that was, you know, living pretty close to the ground. Do you think there was any dukkha in our life? None was ever mentioned. And the denial of pain and insecurity and vulnerability and oppression is just phenomenal how denial can keep it all out of sight. Out of sight. You may be discovering some of that yourself. We live with this tremendous dukkha and don't know it. The power of the mind to live in denial out of sight of the obvious is just one of those tricks of the mind that we discover when we start practicing awareness. I am so thankful and I have so much gratitude for my Dharma teachers who brought dukkha out of the closet and said, hey, look, take a look at this. 
Just look. And in time, I began to see that there's this condition in life, this truth of dukkha to be dealt with. We say practice is to investigate and to discover the first noble truth. Because our avoidance, our distraction, our denial is so strong, we don't know it. We don't know the first noble truth of dukkha until we look, until we sit still enough and pay close enough attention that we see and discover the obvious pain, physical and mental, emotional, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the oppression that we live with. It's hard. I want to commend you all for having the courage to take a look. You may not have known what you're getting into. I probably that's the only way you'd ever start. Nevertheless, once you start, you can't stop. Because once you see this is, this is what's going on, you have to do something about it. Some would say, why should I practice? When I just sit, I, I just get uncomfortable. When I just look at, like this, I just uncover all kinds of mess in my mind. My mind's a mess. Why should I look? It only causes suffering. Actually, practice doesn't cause suffering. Practice reveals the suffering, the dukkha, that's already there. It's just turning the mind and training the mind in such a way that we no longer avoid it or deny it. Because once we open to it, we will feel the urgency to do something about it. It is a supreme act of compassion to practice. Compassion for yourself to practice. And while we usually think that compassion acts to relieve suffering, it's a little bit kind of like a paradox that this act of compassion in practicing actually reveals and brings to the foreground suffering. But there's two kinds of suffering, two kinds of dukkha. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering. When we grab on and hold on and hang on, that's suffering, and it leads to more suffering. It's like if you closed your fist and you held it, squeezed it tight, you know, after a minute, it'd be, going, it'd be aching. And after five minutes, it'd be numb. After 10 minutes, you wouldn't feel it. It'd be oblivious. And you could walk around like that for a week or a year, well, 30 years, 40 years. And then some wise person says, why don't you open your fist? At this point, you don't know that your, that your fist is painful. And so you begin to open it. And, and as soon as you start to open it, all the aching and the pain and the numbness and the stiffness comes back and it's suffering. But actually, once the hand is open, the suffering that you have experienced is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Remember, there's two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads to more suffering is grasping. The suffering that leads to the end of suffering is letting go. So the first noble truth is to be investigated through practice. The second noble truth 
the Buddha wanted to know why do we suffer? Why is there dukkha? What is the cause of this dukkha? And in looking at his experience and really understanding how it was moving on and unfolding, he discovered that craving is the cause of dukkha. Craving in the form of wanting, yearning, clinging, grasping, holding on, desiring, uh, being identified with, you know, kind of appropriating for oneself. These are all ways that we cling, crave, hold on. We crave pleasant experiences. We all prefer praise to blame. We all prefer pleasure to pain. We all prefer uh, you know, being attractive to being ugly. We all prefer being liked to being disliked. We, we crave, we want pleasant physical, mental, emotional, social, psychological, political, and economic experience. And our whole life is geared towards picking and choosing things, people, events, activities, in order to secure as much pleasure as we can for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that, except that it doesn't bring an end to dukkha. The Buddha never said there's anything wrong with pleasant experiences. He didn't say you should get rid of them, that you should hate them. Or, no. If you experience pleasant experience, great. But just understand, they don't last. Well, what do we crave besides pleasant experiences? The Buddha said there are three things. We crave pleasant experiences. We also crave, the Buddha said, continued existence. Well, what does that mean? Let me ask you, did you find yourself making plans today? You know, planning the end of the retreat, planning next year, planning your wedding, planning, you know, when you get enlightened, planning when you retire, plan, I don't know, whatever, planning anything. What is planning? Planning is planting seeds in the mind for a better future. And it's always about you. We don't make those kind of plans for other people. We're always in the plans. We are craving a better life later. And we're making plans for it. And if we're not careful, we'll act on those plans. We'll try to fulfill them all the while being dissatisfied with the way it's going and planting more seeds for more future. This is called samsara, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. The Buddha was really perceptive and comprehensive, and he said, not only do we crave continued existence, we also crave the end of it all, if you will. Or he said, we crave the non-existence. What does that mean? Let's not get too esoteric. Let's not get too far out. Did any of you want to take a nap earlier today? You know, I mean, we're sitting there, and we're just the mind is tormenting us, and the body's aching, and it's just like this, and all oh, the sitting has just started, and there's another one, and there's another three this afternoon. It's like, ah, I, th I think I'll just go take a nap. You know, 
hoping that we can just fall asleep and it all disappears. <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Most of us have this uh, belief. At least I do. If I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Do you have that assumption? I'm not the only one, I know. It seems so logical. If I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. And the Buddha said, not so. If you don't get what you want, of course, (laughs) you're not happy. But if you do get what you want, the Buddha pointed and said, well, If what you want is alive, it is susceptible to getting sick and and growing old and dying. If what you want is made out of metal, it'll corrode or rust or, you know, fall apart. If what you want is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. (laughs) If it's valuable, you have to ensure it for which you have to work some more. And it is also a tempting target for thieves or the government to confiscate. It's like, even if you get what you want, You have to keep working to protect its value to you, which is all dukkha too. And in the end, whatever you have acquired will pass away. It will wear out, it'll break, it'll be confiscated, lost, destroyed, die. It doesn't last. Not getting what you want, dukkha. Getting what you want, dukkha. So some of us, having realized this to some degree in our life out there, see that maybe spiritual practice offers an alternative. So we come on retreat. You know, get away from it all. I'm not pursuing all that pleasure. I'm pursuing enlightenment. You know, so we come here, or or freedom, or whatever, understanding something. We're pursuing something. You're all here for some reason. And... Once you get in the the format of a retreat or the format of practice, what is it that you want most? A good sitting. Right? Is there anybody that didn't want a good sitting today? We all want a good sitting. So we come in, we sit down. You know, as one of our our students says, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) Why? You have a good sitting, and then you think, you automatically think, oh, this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. And it never is. It's, even the next sitting is usually just the opposite because you're looking for that good sitting and it's painful and aching and restless and why isn't it happening and misery. Be careful what you want. You might get it. Recent studies, psychological studies, have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. Also, what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we fear it will. Another study of lottery winners and those who experience catastrophic illness or calamity discovered that a year after winning the lottery, the baseline happiness of lottery winners was the same as the day before they won the lottery. Isn't 
Don't you think that if you won the lottery, you'd be happy forever? <laughs> After a year, baseline, same. Same with those who experience uh, catastrophic accidents or, or calamities. A year after the event, baseline happiness, same as before the event. Well, together, we can only, from, from these two studies together, we can only conclude that we don't really know what will make us happy. And our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. Pointing to the obvious and the Buddhist teachings that happiness is not dependent on external conditions, but it is dependent on our mind and relationship to them, which is what we're working with here. Well, craving, clinging, attachment, desiring, the Buddha said, is to be let go of, to be abandoned. The first noble truth is to be investigated and discovered. The second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned. If the Buddha had stopped there and said, here's the two noble truths, truth of dukkha caused by craving, good luck, <laughs> what, would, what would we do? I mean, it's like, <laughs> lucky for us, he found two more. <laughs> So, the Buddha looked and discovered that there is an end to dukkha. All that dukkha I spoke about can come to an end. And the end of dukkha is achieved through the end of craving. When we can relinquish craving, when we can abandon craving, when we can let go, of the cause of dukkha, dukkha comes to an end. Often when we read about or hear about the third noble truth, we hear about nibbana, awakening, enlightenment, uh, freedom, whatever. And it always seems so far away. It's like, wow, uh, you know, at the end of a three-month retreat or maybe at the end of your life, or maybe at the end of several lifetimes of practice, maybe if you go to a cave and stay for 50 years, maybe. But even then, do you know anybody? No. It's, 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 well, it's, it, maybe it's a good theory. But I want to use our experience here to point to what the Buddha is talking about very practically, very pragmatically, very empirically. We can confirm what the Buddha was pointing to. And there's many ways that we do that here. First way that we see the end of dukkha, we're sitting, we're trying to pay attention to the present moment, but all of us at one point or another have found ourselves just kind of wound up tight thinking about something, you know, just kind of like, and we come to and our shoulders up around our ear and, you know, we're kind of staring at something with intent and we're saying, do I have to be doing it this way? No. I think I'll let go. Oh, relief. In letting go of what we have discovered is holding on, immediate relief. That dukkha comes to an end right there. 
because we let go. But if we weren't paying attention, we wouldn't know how much tension we're carrying in the body. Some of the tension, some of the pain you feel today, you felt today, some of the tension you feel, some of the chronic holding patterns in the mind displayed or apparent in tension the body, we can let go of. Sometimes it just takes paying attention close enough to discover, oh, I walk around with one shoulder up in the air. I walk around with clenched fists. I walk around with a tight stomach. I walk around. And we discover this, and sometimes we can just let go. We abandon the holding on. We abandon the craving. We abandon the clinging, that holding, because we've seen it. If you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't see it. You'd keep walking around for another 10 years. Well, when I first started practice, it was a few years after I got out of university. And when I was in the university, I was studying engineering. And that was back in the days before they had handheld calculators. And uh, everything was done with a slide rule. You know, a lot of mathematics. It was just tremendous amount of mathematics. Multiplying and dividing little big numbers using a slide rule as best you could. And, and lot of mental calculations. So that was, my, that was my habit, doing a lot of mental calculations. So when my mind would wander, I go into my retreat, you know, first 10 years of retreat, my mind would wander. It would wander into doing mathematical computations. And I'd be sitting there multiplying out <laughs> four and five digit numbers and kind of come to and think, I, I don't need to be doing this. <laughs> I didn't know I was doing it. That whatever you've done with your life is what you'll find yourself doing when your mind wanders unconsciously. Well, after noticing that a few hundred thousand times, I can now confess I haven't noticed myself doing that lately. Because the habit has been let go of. Just let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. And finally, as a habit, it just doesn't come back. What a relief. But there's a second way that we see the end of dukkha. And that is we discover the obsessing mind and we begin to tame it. Now, I'm sure you've discovered some wandering mind that when you see it, you can let go and it, it's gone. You may come back, but it's, it's gone in the moment. But sometimes the mind gets obsessed you know, with some emotional drama in the past or in the present or imagined in the future. It gets obsessed with some emotional drama, and you'd like to let go, but you can't. You get caught up in some angry memory or some jealousy or some fear of the future, or some depression about something, or, and... You'd like to say, okay, stop, I'm done with you now, put you aside, and it, it doesn't go anywhere, it stays right there. This kind of hanging on, this kind of clinging, this kind of grasping is not amenable to intentional letting go. It's not. We actually have to train the mind to see it, withstand it, and watch it come to an end. In time, we can learn to not be caught in that obsessive 
state of mind. But it takes training the mind. It takes recognizing all of those defilements that I, or the defilements when they arise, seeing how you're relating to them, getting caught by them, and when you are aware of them, already there's a little bit of letting go. When there's no awareness, we're caught in them. When there's a little awareness, we've already started letting go. And while it may take some intense stamina and energy to not get re-identified with them, there's the beginning of freedom right there. The beginning of relief. It is so noticeable, the difference between being angry and being aware of anger. The difference is just immense. All it takes is that awareness of what's happening in the present moment. This is not the complete abandonment of the defilements. It's the mere recognition of them, and there's an immediate lessening of dukkha. You've all had that experience today. Somehow, just becoming aware of, oh, the sleepiness, this restlessness, this boredom. You might not like the boredom, you might not like the restlessness, you might not like the fear, but in the awareness of it, you're not entangled in it. End of dukkha, temporarily. There's a third way that we experience uh, the end of dukkha, and that is uh, partly through the way Kamala's been teaching the equanimity practice. When equanimity gets some legs and it gets some development in the mind, we see what's going on, and we have a non-reactive relationship to it. The reactivity of wanting and aversion and is suffering. It's really obvious. And when we can hold that object, that experience, that without grasping or aversion, there's this peace in the mind. There's this space of non-reactivity in the mind. The dukkha of the clinging Let's go. You can develop equanimity as uh, a concentration practice of, through uh, repetition of phrases and, and recollection of the understanding of equanimity. You can also do it through frequent mindfulness. You just become aware of these pleasant and unpleasant mental and physical emotional experiences and you just let go of your identification, let go of your reaction to it. In time, that habit of reactivity doesn't get initiated. And you see the objects, and the mind is quite at ease with what's happening. This, this provides us with an ongoing sense of relief, a sense of coolness towards all that's going on. You're not oblivious to what's going on. You're not disconnected from it. You're connected to it, but you're not identified with it. And in that is this tremendous relief of not being jerked around by attachment and aversion. So the development of a balanced mind 
is the third way. There's letting go intentionally, letting go through the development of awareness, letting go through the development of a balanced mind, an equanimous mind. There's another experience of letting go that is not intentional, nor through mindfulness, nor through the samadhi or the, the tranquility that comes with equanimity. And it is the letting go through understanding, through insight. And it happens this way. As we practice, we begin to and conduct a pretty thorough cataloging of all of the mental, physical, emotional stuff that makes up our life. Whether it's the past, the present, or the future, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, whether it's gross, subtle, pleasant, unpleasant, eventually we cover it all. Having done a thorough personal history review, we know what's in there. Initially, we can have a lot of reactivity to what we discover. But in time, what we discover, we establish a a relationship with. Then we start to notice something really peculiar, or I should say unique. And that is that all experience is alike in three ways. All experience are alike in three ways. We could say there are three characteristics to all experience. And the first is that we notice everything that appears disappears. Everything. Everything that arises passes away, meaning everything is impermanent. Now, when this understanding, this is an understanding that comes. We get it. We, we grok it at an experiential level that, that, that kind of universal. We, we understand universally that everything is impermanent. Every moment that we experience a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, a feeling, emotion, pleasant, unpleasant, every time we experience that, we also have the understanding this doesn't last. When that understanding is so mature and so developed, there isn't anything that can arise in the mind that would cause the mind to reach and hold on to it. Because the understanding that it doesn't last is right there to stop the mind from reaching, from grasping, from clinging, from holding, from attaching to. And the mind just rests. It just rests here with this present moment, eternally, I mean, uh, ever-changing present moment, not reaching, grasping, clinging to anything because of the understanding of impermanence. Now, when the mind doesn't reach for anything, it doesn't grasp anything, it doesn't cling to anything, everything just comes and goes. There's no second noble truth. There's no craving. There can be no dukkha. From that place of the mind not reaching anything, out of the understanding that it is impermanent, the mind can access the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is 
Nibbana. Uh, this is what the Buddha is pointing to at the Third Noble Truth. It is this supreme state of non-craving, non-clinging, non-attachment, where the mind lets go of everything and discovers the supreme happiness of peace. That's one, that's the first understanding, or that's one understanding that we come to through the development of insight. The second understanding that we come through, come to through insight, is the understanding of dukkha. Now, I spoke earlier about dukkha, and you have the understanding conceptually of what the full range of, of dukkha is. But in practice, when we see this is painful and let go. When we see this is unstable and let go, when we see that this is oppressive and let go, and when we see this quality or this characteristic in every experience that arises, the mind begins to recognize that there is nothing worth grasping or clinging or holding on to that is going to provide the satisfaction, the stability, the safety, the security that we seek. But that knowledge of that is liberating. It frees the mind from attachment and clinging to anything or to everything. And when the understanding of dukkha is mature, and we see this understanding, we see this characteristic in every experience, the mind does not reach for, does not cling to or grasp anything. And again, the mind can discover, can fall into, can reach the unconditioned. Supreme happiness of peace, where the mind is not hanging on to anything. It is realizing the supreme happiness of peace. It's not tranquility. It's not equanimity. It's not calmness. It's not bliss. It's not joy. It's not ecstasy. It's none of that. It's Nibbana, the characteristic of which is peace. There, there are words that point to Nibbana, but Nibbana is indescribable. It has no qualities. It has no there's no size, shape, color, texture, thoughts. There's no concept to it. It is ineffable. There's no words to describe it. We use words like peace or uh, release, freedom, to point to it. The third understanding that insight reveals is the understanding that everything that arises is dependent on conditions. Whatever arises is just made up of other things that are arising. And all of those things that are arising are also made up of other things that are arising. We could say that everything is just pixels, just impersonal pixels arising in the mind. Pleasant, unpleasant, colorful, non-colorful, gross. They're just pixels of stuff, none of which have any substance because they're all made up of pixels too. And we see this. We really understand, wow, everything is just really has no inherent substance. We say it is empty of self. 
it is empty of any inherent selfness. Whether it's a thing or a person or anything else, there's nothing solid there. And we see this, and we see it in an ongoing way, moment after moment, that everything that arises is just, well, it's a conditioned appearance. Due to conditions, something appears. It is as insubstantial as a rainbow, which is an appearance, which is an appearance in the sky due to conditions. A little sunlight and moisture viewed from a certain angle looks like a rainbow. Is there a rainbow? No. There's nothing inherent in a rainbow. It's just an appearance due to conditions. So too, when the insight knowledge of this characteristic, this not-self characteristic, arises in the mind, we see, we understand. Everything that appears in the mind is just an appearance due to impersonal conditions. When the mind knows that, it does not reach for, cling to, or grasp anything. And again, when the mind is at ease, not reaching for anything because of under this understanding, it can access, fall into, or realize the unconditioned. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. It's possible. It can be reached. It can be realized by each one of us. It is the supreme happiness of peace. The Buddha called it sublime, deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle. However, it is intelligible to the wise. To those who develop wisdom, they can realize it. We have the first noble truth of dukkha caused, the second noble truth by craving, which is when abandoned reveals the third noble truth, the end of dukkha. And the way to the end of that dukkha, the path to, to walk, the path to follow, the path to develop, to reach the end of dukkha, the end of craving, is the noble Eightfold Path, Fourth Noble Truth. The Noble Eightfold Path is three trainings. The trainings in purifying the mind, speech, behavior, and our understanding. So the first is training in ethical conduct, living in harmony, by purifying our speech and behavior. When we do that, we overcome, we take out, we uh, minimize, the transgressive defilements, immediate relief from a lot of suffering. The second training is the purification of mind, purifying the mind of the obsessing defilements. When that is accomplished, then the mind enjoys the happiness of tranquility or seclusion, non-obsessing. Third training is a training in wisdom or insight knowledge where through the three insights that I just mentioned, we purify our understanding. And when the understanding is purified, then we have access to the happiness of peace. 
This is what the Buddha taught. That we should investigate the first noble truth of dukkha, that we should abandon the second noble truth of craving in order to realize the third noble truth of the end of suffering by developing the fourth noble truth, the path to the end of suffering. Everything we do here is to investigate the dukkha, the first noble truth, to let go of what we can by realizing as much of the end of suffering as we can. And all of our actions are held in and fulfilling the three trainings of the Eightfold Path. We could say this is a Four Noble Truths retreat. That's all we're doing here, confirming what the Buddha taught to some degree or another. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. The third Zen patriarch put it this way. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. And when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. <clears throat> and there's time for walking, and then we'll have another sitting where we can do the metta chant again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.